Hey podcasting fam, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. So today I have some really great news and then some bad news and then some really great news. So I'm going to do kind of a sandwich (laughs) because that's probably going to make it a little bit easier to take. So for the really good news, I'm going to be doing my first ever three-part special and we're featuring the Calvert Marine Museum and I'm really excited. What happened was I contacted the museum and I asked them if they wanted to be a part of it and they had so many of their curators that did want to be a part of it um, that I was able to do a three-part episode and I'm really excited to do that for you guys. I think it's going to be really good but for some of the bad news, I was recording all of the interviews that I did for the Calvert Marine Museum on my equipment and when I re-listened to the audio I was just like devastated because the audio is really abysmal. Um, I think it was something to do with the connection between my my microphone and the inverter but it's got a horrible ticking sound and sometimes the inflections are really really strange. It kind of, You can just hear that the audio got a little warped We were in a room with a little bit of background noise, but it should not have affected it the way that it did. So it almost kind of sounds like a bad phone interview, actually. So I have been editing the audio like crazy, and it is not the best. And it was very disappointing because I'm trying really hard to produce really good content for you guys and to do these museums justice with, you know, trying to promote their museum and get their word out there. So I would like to sincerely apologize for the sound quality of these recordings. Um, I Here's comes the good news, more great news. Um, I just got my new microphone set, and that's actually what you're listening to me on right now, just to give you a teaser of what things will sound like. Uh, it's going to be a lot better quality, and I'm really excited because this is actually like a fancy microphone set that journalists use out in the field for like news companies so I'm super official now uh, and I shouldn't have any more problems with the recording sounding such poor quality it's literally killing me Uh, but if you can hold through it and stick it through this episode does have some really good information and it was so much fun to record but I hope that you can still get some enjoyment out of it and still try to give it a listen because it was a lot of fun and like I said there's some really great stuff in it so bear with me (laughs) thanks welcome everybody another fantastic episode but this one I'm very very excited about because we're going to do something a little bit differently usually I do two main items from a museum but this museum that we're featuring this time has a lot to offer so we're going to give you a little bit extra We're going to do three of their different sections that they have here. And today I'm at the Calvert Marine Museum. And the three sections that we're going to really focus on over the next series, because I'm fancy enough of a podcast now that I'm giving myself a series. We're going to talk about paleontology, maritime history, and estuarian biology. And today uh, we have Perry Hampton, who is the curator of estuarian biology the biology section here. Did I say that right? Estuarian? Estuarine. It's, it's a tough word to get your lips around, yeah. Exactly. So thank you for giving me that. Um, so why don't you go ahead and just talk a little bit about what you do here? So uh, start off, the Calvert Marine Museum is probably a little bit unique in terms of museums in that we have a living component to our collection here. 
Uh, and with that, get a lot of special considerations. Our, our artifacts, if you want to call them that, are, uh, are uh, demand our attention uh, seven days a week, uh, 24 hours a day to an extent. Um, it doesn't matter that it's a holiday or you know a snow day or something. We still have to come in to, to take care of our animals and, uh, and something we really enjoy doing. Um, I'm proud to be a part of this institution. I'm so glad that they are recognizing the, uh, the living components uh, as, as an important uh, part of the story to tell about this area. This is the first place that I've gone to that has, I mean, there's just living stuff everywhere. You guys have, so, I mean, so much to offer. Anybody who's listening, definitely come to this museum if you are around here because it's awesome, but you actually get to see the live, live living history, as it were. And getting back to that word estuarine that we struggle with, um, that's an, uh, the reason we use that term is because it's in reference to the Chesapeake Bay, which is an estuary. And an estuary is a body of water where fresh and salt water mix. In the case of the Chesapeake Bay, which is one of the largest estuaries in the world, I'm not sure if it's the largest, but it's certainly right up there. Um, it's uh, fed with fresh water from a variety of, uh, I think there's something like five major rivers that feed into it, provide fresh water from all around states like Pennsylvania, up into even and not almost to the Canadian border in New York, uh, out west into West Virginia and places like that, that feed fresh water from all of these rivers and streams into the Chesapeake Bay. At the same time, down at the mouth of the bay, uh, between the Virginia Cape, Cape Charles and Cape Henry, down near Norfolk, you have seawater, ocean water from the Atlantic Ocean, which flows in twice a day on the high tide, the salt water flows into the Chesapeake Bay. So you get a mixing of fresh and salt water, and that's what an the definition of what an estuary is. Uh, it's an enormously important body of water uh, in so many respects, from uh, commercially, um, a lot of our seafood is harvested from the Chesapeake Bay. Things like oysters and crabs and, and finfish. Your blue, blue crab is really important here. <laughs> um, and if you haven't tried blue crab, it's, it's a Maryland staple and it's just spectacular. One of, one of my favorite seafood items. Um, the, uh, the bay is important from a, uh, obviously from a biological perspective as well. You wouldn't have the commerce if you didn't have the biology. That's, that's an important building block, basically, and we depend on it so much. Um, the, uh, there are many different habitats in the bay that provide homes for all of these different types of fishes and invertebrates and uh, birds and so forth that, that we cherish for so many reasons. Well, it sounds like, so the estuaries are a peak of bio, biodiversity, really. Exactly. So, and it's brackish water? Brackish meaning it's a, it's a, the salt content is not as strong as it is out in the ocean, but more so than you would find in, in a river. So when you're walking through these exhibits, kind of take us through some of the living things that you're going to see in the exhibit. So we start, we have a variety of habitats uh, that we, uh, we want people to become familiar with. We start offshore in deeper water that you might be out in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, we call it, the exhibit is called Just Offshore. Um, and this is, uh, depicts a habitat on the bottom in deep water, maybe six or 700 feet deep, where there's very little light penetration. 
and uh, we have some eels that you might be uh, likely to find if you could somehow dive to that depth, which nobody does. But um, uh, the inhabitants of the deeper water, they're off just offshore. Um, we have another display that uh, depicts some of the, the fish that would be very familiar to a lot of anglers um, that uh, would be found in and around uh, artificial reef structures like bridge piling supports. A lot of people don't really think about it, but we have a lot of bridges around the bay, and these the supports that hold these things up provide habitat. Uh, they're artificial reef structures provide habitat for lots of different fishes, uh, many of them that are popular game, game fishes in the state. Um, we have a display on seagrass beds, which are uh, enormously important habitat for a whole variety of of uh, uh, bays and habitats, but one in particular that just captures people's imagination are seahorses. A lot of people don't realize we have seahorses in the bay. There aren't a lot of them, but we do have some. And that's why the seagrass is so important, but it's really <laughs> struggling through a lot of environmental factors, that's right? right. Yeah, seagrass beds are uh, been decimated over the last you know, 100 years or so um, uh, because of uh, dredging for things like oysters, for example dragging these big heavy nets through the water to scrape oysters also does tremendous damage to seagrass beds. They basically just wrecks them out completely. I'm curious, is it kind of like topsoil? Because I know that if you take the topsoil off on land, the top few inches of dirt is kind of the most nutrient dense and most important, and it takes a really long time for that area to kind of rehabilitate. Is it the same underwater? Uh, I'm not sure that that's a, uh, you know, sort of a one-for-one -one analogy. But in places where a lot of dredging has taken place, um, a lot of damage does is, is done to the bottom sediments of a lot of things that live there in those areas. And I suppose you know, we could probably make the connection. But it takes a while for it to kind of recover. Yeah, absolutely. Um, seagrass beds have also been harmed quite a bit by uh, nutrients. That's, uh, those are pollutants. When we say nutrients from a scientific perspective, um, uh, a lot of people, when a person hears the word nutrient, they know oh, that's a good thing, isn't it? Well, not really when you're talking about it from scientific and uh, marine biology perspective, because nutrients refer to things like phosphates and nitrates, which are the primary constituents of fertilizer. People fertilize fields for crops and make the lawns look nice, and you know, for all, with all the best intentions, a lot of these chemicals get into the ocean or into the, uh, into the bay, and uh, they promote algal growth. And the bad part about that is algal growth prevents sunlight from reaching the bottom, which is which the, the seagrasses need. So it's a little bit of a complicated uh, story to tell, but it's important to understand that over-fertilization has led to the decimation of a lot of these seagrass beds. And a lot of animals depend on those, particularly when they're in their, uh, maybe their larval or their juvenile state. They seek refuge from predators there. Um, a lot of smaller animals, like the seahorses, for example, uh, make those their homes. So without that, without the, the seagrass beds, you don't have a lot of this biological diversity that's just so important. Do you have any advice for someone who's maybe listening to this and wants to be a little bit more conscious with their fertilization use? Uh, I guess the, the main thing is, is just be careful with it. Uh, try not to over-fertilize. Uh, maybe look for alternative methods. Not that I'm a seahorse lover or anything, but going back to these amazing seahorses, uh, I know there's some really fun stuff about seahorses, so can you tell us some uh, fun facts? 
Oh yeah, they're they're a really unique fish, and yes, indeed, they are fish. They may not look like you know when you when you conjure up the image of a fish in your mind, they're not the first thing that pops into your head. Um, they they have a very unique and distinctive appearance. Um, part of that is they're called sea horses because their head looks very much like a horse's head. Um, they have a long tubular snout, and uh, we we think of them in our profession as what you what's known as ambush predators, and that sounds like a when you think ambush predators, most people think of a lion, yeah, and, you know, something really fierce. And geez, how do you apply that to a seahorse? But but if you're, you're if you're if you're plankton, um, you have a lot to fear. They uh, they eat almost constantly, and uh, they have a very uh, simple digestive system. It's almost a straight tube. It's not a long convoluted digestive system like we have that allows the body to retain uh, nutrients. It, uh, the food basically goes in one end and comes out the other very quickly. So for that reason, they have to eat a lot all the time, and their primary food source is, is small uh, shrimp-like uh, creatures and worms and things like that, tiny, tiny little things that are essentially plankton. Um, and uh, yeah, so so that's uh, that's their primary food source. So also, what I'm hearing is that uh, more schools should have the seahorse as their mascot because they're killers. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you find your perspective, they, they're, they're, they can be pretty fierce predators. So. Um, the other really unique thing about seahorses, and I think this is probably what you were alluding to, is their reproductive system. Um, unlike most other animals, or I guess nearly all other animals, it's, believe it or not, actually the male that gets pregnant. I know that's a lot of women are like, Yes. Um, what happens is the female still produces the eggs, just like with every other animal, but she passes them to the male, and he puts them in this little pouch he has on abdomen. It's not on its abdomen. It's not all that different looking than uh, the kind of pouch that you might think of with a kangaroo. Um, and then he uh, uh, fertilizes those eggs, and they grow and develop inside his, this abdominal pouch that he has, or it's called a brood pouch. And he carries on the term. So for all intents and purposes, he is effectively pregnant. And uh, when the time comes, he gives birth. Now, with a lot of fishes, they have um, there's a whole variety of different ways that they produce their young, very often with eggs, which they may cast off into the water, or they may build a nest and protect them. The, 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 the variety runs the gamut. But with seahorses, they give birth to live, miniature replicas of themselves. They will be the baby seahorse looks exactly like an adult, just on a very, very tiny uh, scale. They may be as small as a sixteenth of an inch long uh, when they first uh, come out. And lots of um, an adult male seahorse might give birth to anywhere between 50 and maybe 300 babies at one time. So when these sea baby seahorses are basically born, hatched, born, then they're um, off on their own, right? Is there any parental yes, there's care? No, there's no parental care whatsoever. You're at sea of your own around, have fun, good luck. That's uh, probably why they're miniatures of the adults. Yeah. That makes sense. And, yeah, and you know, the thing is, when an animal produces a lot of young like this, that means that their primary function is to be lunch for somebody else. Um, so there's a very low survival rate. Even though hundreds of babies may be produced on a regular basis, very few of those will survive to adulthood. Maybe none of them. Um, but in nature, if an animal 
reproduces itself once over the course of its life, that's really all that's expected of it, or has been in the past. Usually in the past, until people came along and began to over-harvest things and, and have such a detrimental impact on so many species, if, if an animal reproduced itself once, or well, maybe twice, because you have to account for the, the male as well, um, that was it, that was a success. Um, but things are a little bit different now today, so it's, it's, a, more it's important that a little bit more uh, more of these uh, uh, juveniles survive. So you have that great exhibit, and then you keep walking through, and I'm really excited to talk about your invasive species section. Yeah, as I said, most of our displays uh, depict habitats uh, in and around the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, we do have a, uh, a, a separate section where we would like to talk, it's sort of a special exhibit, we want to talk about uh, the dangers of invasive species. Uh, an invasive species is one, is an, an animal or a plant uh, that has been introduced into a habitat to which it does not belong. It, it didn't evolve there, it was introduced either intentionally or accidentally. Um, in some cases we have intentionally introduced uh, species into a new area with the best intentions, maybe to control something else, um, or in the case of a lot of plants, they've been brought in because they're, they're attractive to look at, what have you. Uh, in, in some other cases, however, uh, species have been introduced accidentally. Um, and the problem is, in, in most cases, uh, the results can be detrimental to the, the native species that were there in the first place. Usually the newcomers, uh, for whatever reason, have some advantage and tend to take over and consume all a lot of the native species. And uh, some of the examples we have to show that are, are here in Maryland, we've got a problem with a fish called the snakehead. This is a species that's native to Asia and China and places like that. Uh, <clears throat> they were brought over here for the Asian seafood market alive, because uh, that's the way they're sold. And somehow or another over the years, a lot of these live fishes have gotten out and uh, have gotten into a lot of our rivers, lakes, and streams. And the problem is they're voracious predators. They have big mouths with large teeth, and they have no problem swallowing up a lot of our native species. So they're out competing a lot of the local, the local fish that you know, we depend on for biological diversity, but also for recreation and commerce and so forth. So. And also, whenever you usually bring over a new species in the new environment, it has no natural predators. So it basically right. is able to breed unchecked. So you have the invasive species kind of area, and then we, we went in, and I know I saw some jellyfish, <laughs> which were pretty cute. The je jellies are, are, as I uh, mentioned when we were walking around, that's something that uh, uh, people obviously try to avoid. They're, if they're swimming at the beach, so that they're they're kind of mesmerizing and they're they're very pleasant to look at in, in the aquarium setting. They're sort of delicate and beautiful. They can actually be in the estuary water. There are um, there are jellyfish in the bay. Anybody who swim swim there in the summertime can tell you uh, some some years are worse than others in terms of the prevalence of jellies. Uh, the type that we have most commonly in the Chesapeake Bay are known as Atlantic sea nettles, and they have a rather unpleasant sting uh, for most people. It's not something that's debilitating. It's not going to kill you, 
but it's 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 annoying and in some cases uh, some people would probably say it's agonizing. But for most of it, it's really more annoying than anything else. The, uh, the type of jelly that we have on display is a little bit different. It's one known as a moon jelly. You don't find them in the bay as much, at least not uh, the farther northern reaches, because water just isn't salty enough for them. But if you're down around the southern end of the bay where the water's saltier, closer to the Atlantic, you're going to be encountering these. They're known as moon jellies. Uh, because they look like a full moon and they get to be about the size of a dinner plate. They're not powerful stingers at all. You can hold one in your hand and you, you won't really feel anything at all. If you were to get uh, maybe the tentacles down on, on your forearm or your face or someplace like that, you might feel a, some mild uh, discomfort. And we talked a little bit about their breeding. Jellies, uh, and this, this is, there's a lot of variety in jellyfish reproduction. Um, but uh, sort of a, a generalization with a lot of them is that um, they have sort of two methods of reproduction, both sexual and asexual. In terms of sexual reproduction, you'll have a male jelly that uh, produces sperm and a female jelly that produces eggs, and they will release those uh, into the water, and uh, they'll mix and produce viable young little microscopic multicellular organisms that eventually grow and turn into the larger, more recognizable jellies. Um, and then they, but they can also uh, settle out. What will happen is those uh, known as planula will settle out onto a hard surface eventually, like maybe the bottom of a boat hull or a rock or a bridge piling, whatever it might be, and they'll grow there and it almost looks like moss or algae growing. It's a little fuzz. But if you look very closely, uh, there are little structures that are sort of conical in shape that produce sort of pieces of themselves that break off, that look for all the world like snowflakes. And these float around in the water and eventually grow. They're clones. They're clones of the, the original organism that settled out onto the, the hard surface. And each of these little clones will float out and, and grow from the snowflake size and appearance into these more recognizable jellies that I said might, in some cases, in the case of the moon jellies, get to be about the size of a dinner plate. Uh, there are other species of jellies that get to be quite large, some of them as big as that desk. Just out of my own personal curiosity, what is the lifespan of like a moon jelly? For the most part, they'll usually survive about a year. Usually about one sort of one uh, cycle of, of uh, uh, weather patterns, so for you know, huh. summer, winter, and so forth. Um, we have, we and many other aquariums have kept uh, jellies in, uh, in a protected environment, however, for many, many years in some cases, mm -hmm. so they can live longer. You guys have a lot of different, you know, environments that you show, but one that also has a lot of importance, especially in the Bay Area, is the one that has all of the oysters. Oysters are, uh, are have been a an enormously important uh, species in the Bay um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, everyone knows, you know, commercially, they've been very important for a long time. Um, a lot of people love to eat oysters. Um, they've been harvested, uh, been over-harvested, to be quite frank, uh, over the decades, uh, to the point we have photographs next to the, the display showing piles of uh, 
oyster shells that are, you know, larger than a barn. It's just like those iconic pictures of the bison. I mean, it's crazy. It looks just like that. It's a huge yeah. mountain. So, so one problem is we've taken too many of them out of the environment. Another problem is that they've, they've fallen victim to uh, pollution and, and disease issues. Uh, so it's sort of a, it's kind of a one-two punch that's decimated the oyster population. So they're, uh, they're important for, uh, for commerce. A lot of, you know, there are people whose livelihood depends upon them, harvesting them. Uh, we, you know, they, they, the whole fact that they're sold in restaurants, there's you know, the whole sort of trickle-down economy that's associated with the oysters. Um, but beyond that, they're also important as habitat in the bay. Uh, there are a lot of uh, other organisms, just like we were talking about earlier with the seagrasses, other organisms that live in and around the oysters and seek shelter there. Um, so they're, they're habitat for other species, many of whom themselves are, are important commercially and biologically. Um, and uh, they also help filter the water. They remove a lot of pollutants and so forth from the water itself. We talked earlier about one of the problems with uh, seagrass beds is the water's murky because of the prevalence of algae. Um, oysters have an ability to filter out a lot of that algae from the water. So kind of continuing through the exhibit, I'm, I'm thinking back at, you know, when we were walking through, and of course, one of the huge things that stands out, and I'm sure it's the same with everyone, but you guys have some otters. <laughs> we, we have three North American river otters, uh, and they are kind of the stars of the show here. They're just Understandably. inherently cute. They, everything they do is reacted to by screams of awe. I did contain my scream of awe almost when we were walking through. They came scampering up right up to the glass and said hello, and I kept my professional face on, I'm sure. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> they're, they're, even to us who work with them, they're very, very endearing creatures. Um, the, uh, you know, we have them because we want people to learn about their, you know, not just because they're, they're attractive animals, but we want people to understand their importance and their role in the environment. Um, they, are, they are predators, uh, they prey, they eat, they're uh, omnivores, they'll eat, God, geez, almost everything, you know, they'll eat bird eggs, they'll eat turtles, snakes, uh, uh, crabs, fish, uh, dead things, you name it, they'll eat uh, almost anything. Um, and uh, in the past, were, there was probably a pretty healthy population of otters around the bay. Um, like many other things, though, they've been, they're, they're, Populations have been decimated due to overharvesting. Um, in the case of the otters, it was for their pelts. Uh, uh, trappers in the 17 and 1800s primarily uh, reduced the numbers by selling uh, otter pelts. Um, the population has rebounded somewhat, but I suspect it's probably not anywhere near the numbers that we would have seen had we been here maybe 200 years ago or so also just adorable because it's you know not too far from christmas and they actually have three little stockings up for each one of their otters and it's really cute <laughs> can you tell us some fun facts about otters that maybe people don't know well they have very dense uh fur coat um keeps them warm in the cold water they they actually thrive here they enjoy being out in the, in the cold much more than the heat in the summertime when, they, when it's hot in the summer they, they come inside we, we give them access to front and uh, we have an outside portion of the exhibit 
and then an in, indoor section. And when it's hot and humid outside, you'll usually find them inside sleeping in the air conditioning. In the wintertime, however, when it's just the nastiest, coldest, rainiest, snowiest days that you just don't want to be outside, that's when they're out there and they're enjoying it the most. They're sliding around on the rock work, they're swimming in the water, they're, they thoroughly enjoy themselves in that nasty cold weather. And a lot of this is because of that nice thick fur coat that they've got that helps insulate them against the cold. But they also have very uh, fast metabolism too. They eat a lot of high calorie food on a regular basis. They just they're sort of like little they have little internal nuclear reactors from all of this, this high calorie food that they're eating and metabolizing that keeps them warm as well. What's the favorite food of the otters that you have here? We feed them primarily fish. They get uh, smelt and capelin. Uh, capelin's a, a little bit more of an oily kind of fish. Um, so they get uh, that's where most of their calories come from. When we try to vary their diet, they get all kinds of things like dried fruit, and uh, they get hard-boiled eggs. They get uh, different types of fruits, uh, other types of vegetables. We'll give them. Um, Sounds a little like they're that. some spoiled happy otters. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't mean to brag here or anything, but I did get to go behind the scenes. And um, it's incredible the amount of work that you don't see in the front of the exhibit because, you know, you kind of see the smaller area of the tanks that's just visible and you see, you know, the individuals that you have in those tanks. But in the back, it's a whole massive operation all in itself. And that's our goal, actually. We, when you, we want you to walk through and we want you to sort of suspend disbelief temporarily. Uh, when you look in an exhibit, you should, if we're doing our jobs properly, you should... Um, think that you're looking out into this little slice of the bay, you know, a little, little section. Um, so, it, but it, in order to do that, uh, unlike the real bay, um, we have to, it takes a lot of work to keep it that way, you know, you have to control unwanted algal growth on the windows and the, some of the artificial surfaces and things like that, and you have to clean up uneaten food and, and waste products from the animals and, and, and that kind of thing. We have pumps and filters that keep the water nice and clear. You know, if you were to swim in the bay, you wouldn't be able to see more than a foot or two, you know, away from your from your eyes. But you know, in the exhibits, we, we kind of want you to be able to see the animals, so we try to keep the water clean. Um, and it's also better for their, their health and well-being too to keep it cleaned up. Um, so there are pumps and built with different types of filters, and there are lights and all of these kind of things that do require our attention and maintenance and upkeep. Uh, we have to a lot of, spend a lot of time preparing diets and food, you know, foods for the animals and feeding them. And some of the foods are live foods that require culture. We have to grow uh, different types of plankton and things like algae and so forth that some of the animals prefer as part of their diet. It's like you guys have and a so little science experiment going back there with yeah. all the glass vials yeah. and bubbles and stuff. Right, right. Looks a little suspicious. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a seven day a week uh, job. You know, the animals don't care that it might be Christmas Day or you know, or Thanksgiving, or the fact that we have a foot of snow outside and everybody else is staying home, we still have to be here to take care of them. And you have something like, how many animals? Uh, I mean, it's a rolling yeah, basis, well, obviously. We do, we, I try to do a thorough census at least once a year, and I think the last time we did it, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 700 uh, specimens, living specimens in the collection of, of probably trying to remember how many species, individual species that was, but I think it was probably around 60 or 70 species. Wow.
And one thing, whenever you're going back in the back, you guys have some sharks back there that only get a once a year debut. Yeah, uh, we have an event here each summer known as Shark Fest. We didn't have it this year because of the COVID uh, outbreak, but it's one of our most popular events here at the museum. And I would highly encourage you to, if you find yourself in Southern Maryland, uh, second week in July, I think it's always the, I wanna say the second Saturday in July, uh, Shark Fest. And we put on all kinds of um, special programs related to sort of the celebration of sharks. And we have a couple of sharks that we keep, we have well, four of them, two species that we keep uh, just for that purpose. And we bring them out and we put them in a special tank outside and people can come along and see them up close and personal. They can actually touch them. They actually allow you uh, to carefully touch the sharks. It's not gonna hurt you. These aren't something that's gonna take your hand off or we wouldn't let it happen. Um, and, uh, but we supervise it because we're concerned about health and well-being of sharks, primarily. And uh, we get upwards of 3,000 people uh, who will come uh, because they like to participate in this event uh, when it occurs. And so the living sharks are just part of it. But these, these ones you're referring to in particular are known as horn sharks and swell sharks, and they're actually not from our area. They're one of the few species that we have here that are actually from outside the Chesapeake Bay region. In fact, these come from California. And we got them specially because they're very well adapted to sort of this lifestyle where they live in a tank in the back most of the year and then they're just brought out this one day for their, uh, their big event. And they're very well adapted to that. Uh, local sharks, things that we could get from the Bay of the Atlantic Ocean would uh, not be well suited to that because they're just not comfortable uh, being kept in that kind of a, an environment for a long time uh, or they're just simply too big. Something I really appreciate about places like this is your number one concern is the health and safety of the animals in the exhibit and not for displaying them so people can come and I really appreciate that. <laughs> well you know we if, if you're going to keep living animals, they're sort of ambassadors of their species. You have a moral obligation to provide the best possible care that you can for them. And we try to do that every day. Well, is there anything else that you want to kind of talk about or do we cover most of the good stuff? Well, I would just say that, you know, the, the Calvert Marine Museum is a, uh, is a real gem in, in Southern Maryland. It's one of the, uh, uh, the area's few uh, very important, significant cultural resources. And I would encourage you, you know, people come to the Baltimore, Washington area, and they go to the Naval Academy, or they go to all the Smithsonian museums, or you know, all the other attractions the area has to offer, and they sometimes tend to overlook Southern Maryland. And there's, it's, it's, a, it's a real special place, and it's something I would encourage people, if you're, if you're traveling to this area, maybe spend a day or two down in Southern Maryland because in addition to Calvert Marine Museum, there's lots of other cool things to see around here too. But, um, but the museum itself is a real gem, and, and there's a lot to be, a lot to learn here, there's a lot of things to enjoy, and I guarantee you'll have a great experience if you come. Yeah, please, so please do come, because I'm already in love with your museum, so I really appreciate you guys having me, and having, it's like showing me everything that you have here, and being willing to do three episodes, which is awesome! So thank you so much for doing this interview with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It was wonderful. Thank you.